please, if you're a studio executive and you were watching this, everything is so corporate. You know, it's like, what did Francis Ford Coppola say? Factory filmmaking? Just take the drivers from Fast and the Furious and put them in the Transformers. Cars. I miss loving Star Wars. I miss loving it. I used to love it. Yes, I saw Wonder Woman 1984. I wanna know what's gonna happen next. And I, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen the first five or 10 minutes of a movie and I don't wanna watch the rest of it. Or if I could just do the snap that Thanos did, I would get rid of every franchise reboot post probably 92. You know, where's the movie that we all love without debate that we've all loved? Please Hollywood realize that it's not going to work. Would you say that 99% of all movies today are garbage? Uh, in, in an age where most movies are referred to as content, I would say that 99% of most movies are, are, pretty, are pretty bad. I always try to like, when, when I say 99%, I mean of mainstream. It really is when you look at, and especially I think one of the best examples of this is the sort of uh, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League and how that was, you know, bungled. The the that how that was bungled. How the Star Wars franchise was bungled. How they could not. I mean, to me, I, I I'm I'm the studio executive in charge of Star Wars, and we're making a new Star Wars movie. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put Han, Luke, and Leia in a scene together. And the fact that that moment we will never be able to have that moment in cinema when Carrie Fisher was alive that to me is, I mean, that's that's malpractice. That's studio malpractice. The fact that they had what Zack Snyder's vision, what he was building up to be, and I think seeing the four-hour final product of what Zack Snyder's Justice League turned out to be, and that they made this garbage thing, Joss Whedon. I mean, it's it's disheartening to me to see that. Um, I will say on an indie level, I tend to take like a glass half full view, and I tend to always look for the positive when it comes to indie films because you cannot compare the 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 um, you can't compare an indie movie shot in 12 days for $10,000 to Justice League, whichever version you're talking about, you can't compare because in my mind, there is no excuse for a studio to fail when they put out a blockbuster movie. You have no excuse. Your job is to entertain me, not lecture me, not lecture me. Your job is to entertain me. Unfortunately, we live in a time, you know, back in the day when Star Wars was first made, I feel like they were checking one box and it was called fun. And now there's not only, there's a million boxes that must be checked. There are all sorts of noting and committees and this thing. And this is where you end up with, um, you know, that last Star Wars movie by J.J. Abrams is unwatchable. I mean, it's, it's, it's garbage. It's, it's. It's exactly, it informs exactly everything wrong with the studio system. It's, it's terrible. So I look at like the, the, the Justice League debacle, the, the, the Star Wars franchise and how that has been, was mishandled. And I, I look at that and, and I just think, how could that have been done? Where were the, where, where was, the, they're, they're ever like looking at like the fans and what they think, you know? Um, what do the fans think of this stuff? Are they satisfying the fans? Most normal people don't 
you know, like, like, is it entertaining? I'm taking my family, especially how expensive it is to the movie theater experience, which is is going away, right? The theatrical experience of seeing a movie um, is is going away. You had better entertain me. Um, and I think that whether Hollywood notices it or not, I think that people don't really like politics woven into fairly mainstream, which should be mainstream entertainment experiences. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing that more and more. It's, it's unbelievable to me. I think you're leaving money on the table um, for, for not giving what the customer is looking for in that experience. But um, so in my mind, studios, there's no excuse to fail. You have the best people in marketing. You have the most talented actors, craftsmen when it comes to special effects and cinematography, music. There's no excuse for that to fail. And I think part of the failing of Hollywood is that the marketing is so good sometimes. I've, I've argued with friends sometimes that I believe that, that there should be a key art. I mean, there are key art awards you know, for key movie poster art. I'm a fan of movie poster art. There's a really good documentary about movie poster art called 24 by 36. Check out that documentary, um, but you know there there should almost be a, a, a marketing award. And here's the problem, the conundrum: the marketing for some for these movies is so good, the product doesn't live up to the marketing. So, I mean, I got chills watching the trailers for the Rise of Skywalker. I was so excited to see that movie. The ninth. I mean, I was a kid when I saw Star Wars. I'm seeing the ninth movie in this saga. I cannot believe how horrible it turned out. It's 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 really to me it, it's malpractice what happened to that franchise, and how it's divided fandom fighting over things that are really irrelevant. I, I think I, I think it's it's well, not entirely irrelevant. The fact that they're just like you're seeing people from within that company attack the fans is just like it's ugh, I. I I hate to see it because I'm like, I, nerds are my people. I go to San Diego Comic-Con every year. I have since the 90s gone to San Diego Comic-Con. And so to see people fractured over this is really is really disheartening. But um, when it comes to studio movies, there's no excuse not to fail. Now, when it comes to small indie movies, to make a good movie under those circumstances without the resources, without the money, without the great people in marketing, without the budget, without all of the best of circumstances to make an indie movie that like actually can can you can be touched and moved by that is something to be said which is why I've always gravitated toward indie film you know um, it's a miracle when you see something that's that's watchable out of a studio um, but I don't I, I don't know like where are the executives I mean other than like maybe coming to mind like a Kevin Feige which you know maybe his best days are behind him. You know, I can't think of a studio executive that is a visionary these days. Um, are those the jocks? The when, nerds are the the nerds are the consumers. Yeah, they're, they're you, the jocks. Yeah, I mean, when when you look at like the era, the 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 '70s being the the, um, the last great era of American filmmaking, we really are um, losing that American identity because we become so fractured as a culture, and I think that that. The, you know, where's the movie that we all love without debate that we've all loved? Exactly. I don't know that there is one. And, and that's really, uh, you know, I, I really, and, and at the end of the day, I miss loving Star Wars. I miss loving it. I used to love it. And now I'm saddened by 
that franchise. I'm using that as like the best example. There's a lot of other examples. We could talk about the Terminator franchise. We could talk about Star Trek. We can talk about these, these sort of dead franchises that um, have sort of lost their way. But when you look at like, I just saw a documentary called Laddie, um, L-A-D-D-I, about Alan Ladd, the visionary um, studio executive who basically greenlit Star Wars and protected George Lucas. I'm just afraid we're never gonna see another George Lucas, right? We're never gonna see another real creative visionary um, that changes the industry because everything is so corporate. You know, it's like, what did Francis Ford Coppola say? Factory filmmaking? That's, that's the age in which we live. There's factory filmmaking, which is a product and content, and then there's up and coming indie filmmakers and you know when I talked about checking those boxes earlier, a lot of it is like, is it going to appeal international? I mean, let's let's be honest. The box office internationally, and especially in China, is much bigger than the United States. That market, those dollars. So you can't make a movie for the United States anymore. You have to make a movie for the world, which is fine. But I think in in a way that's sort of diluting our identity as as a people, as Americans, as we become more fractured, and it's um. It's distressing to see, you know, you, you, you see it when it's like, when it's like, God, I was having a conversation with a friend, because uh, of course the movies are always an ongoing conversation with friends. Um, if you're in my circle, you, it, it, it will come up. And it's like, when you look at like, when certain decisions are organic or when you see when it's shoehorned in, right? Shoe, when, when certain things are shoehorned in like, um, like a say the the trope that's become a trope now of the strong female lead it's just ripley was a great character like just write a great character not try to shoehorn in a type right and you kind of know it when you see it you go oh, this is cliche this is a you're trying to shoehorn in a type rather than like that's just a great character you're also talking to a guy who, when i ever play a video game i always choose a female character i don't know why i just do that as someone who has watched so many movies, as someone who has made their own films, why do you think there's so many bad films that are made? Well, I, look, the reason there's so many bad films um, these days is I think, well, one, the barrier to entry is is much easier. But I also think that you're, they're on, that, that's on an indie level. I see bad indie films too, right? I usually wanna, wanna help them and say, this was your lesson. Okay, you'll make a better movie in your second movie if you don't quit. But when it comes to studio films, there's just too many notes. There are too many people that um, it's sort of, you know, the modern day ball player, right? Like, it's just like, it's not about the passion for playing the game. Not about a passion of, you know, hitting the ball and hearing the roar of the crowd. It's, you know, it's the licensing deals and it's this and the sales of that and the TV commercials and whatnot. It's, it's um, you know, I, 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 when I look back at the movie The Player, which came out when I first moved to Los Angeles, Robert Altman's The Player, things haven't changed. The subject has changed. I mean, that was sort of, it was erotic thrillers and you know, it was Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis was, were being cast in every movie that was pitched in that film. Now it's superhero movies, but it's really too many cooks and I feel like the people being um, you know, elevated to these positions are good executives 
but they're not people that know the material, the heart of the material. And when you look at the history of you know, um, creatives who really created something, like a George Lucas or a Gene Roddenberry, um, things begin to lose their way when they get sidelined, right? You really need those. I just, I, I feel like the modern day Hollywood now, and especially with streaming changing the game, theaters, the survival of theaters being in doubt, um, really, we may live at a time where maybe the billion dollar blockbuster may not be back for a long time. And that may end up being a good thing, right? Like, let's let's make, it's I always, I'll joke with a friend and I'll say my favorite Spider-Man movie is the one where Mary Jane is in peril at the end, which is pretty much all the Spider-Man movies. Or my favorite science fiction movie is the movie where that thing blows up at the end. That's every science fiction movie, right? Which is why, and The Empire Strikes Back was such a, because it wasn't about we got to do and blow up the thing. That's boring. It's, it's just creatively bankrupt. Which is why Empire Strikes Back holds up. Everybody says, oh, it's the best Star Wars movie. I mean, you could argue, but it, but um, it's, yeah, because it didn't do the, that thing that happened in all the other movies. And, and so trying to go against doing that thing, it's, it's, or fighting a blue light. There's a lot of fighting a blue light that happens um, in films. Fighting a blue light, saving the person at the end, the thing that blows up at the end. Um, and I say defy those cliches um, at all costs. Um, and it's funny because you see like, you know, there's still people that are able to work within studio system and deliver worthwhile films, um, Christopher Nolan being among them. I've um, quite admired his work, although he has a tendency to make things a little overly complex for no reason, just to brag about how smart he is. But there's always a point in his films, and you'll notice it once I point it out, where a character in a Christopher Nolan movie will say, we have to go down the thing and grab the thing to do the thing and shoot this. It's, it's, it's Captain Narrative, right? It's the person that stops the movie to tell you what's happening in the movie, to explain what's going to happen, so that the audience, the dumb audience understands. And to me, oh, so you got that studio, now, studio note, and he compromises in a way that doesn't completely destroy what he's trying to achieve as a filmmaker, so he's willing to play ball. But I just see, and I think, you know, the most recent example being Zack Snyder's Justice League and the fact that that universe will remain unexplored, unfortunately, um, which is disheartening. Uh, uh, you look at that, and I think part of the reason that Zack Snyder's Justice League was suppressed was because, you know, once it came out, and you see these are the choices the studio executives made. They decided to hire Joss Whedon. They decided to change everything about it in, 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 you know, in exchange for this. Like, it makes them look bad, right? Because what Zack Snyder was trying to do was much, much better, um, clearly. Whether you enjoy it personally or not, it was objectively much better than what Joss Whedon ended up coming up with, which was effectively a dumb cartoon, a live action dumb cartoon, so. What about adaptations? Do you think that that's, has that always been around or is that Adaptations something? in what Adaptations sense? of popular books. Not, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a franchise, but you know. Well, seeing... I mean, think about, think about it. It's, here's what's dead is originality. I mean, people forget what George Lucas created in Star Wars was something completely original. I mean, yes, it was influenced by so many things, Westerns, 
you know, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers serials and whatnot. But, but almost nothing that you see isn't based, nothing that you see in the studio realm, it's all based on something pre-existing material. It's a book, a graphic novel, a comic book, a thing that kind of proved the concept, right? And then, or a franchise, right? It's a thing that, you know, whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever, um, you know, comic book characters that have been around for years. It's very rare that there'll be something that's a wholly original concept. Um, so I kind of, uh, you know, I, 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 I really, it would really be interesting if studios rolled the dice more to get something like a Joker, what Todd Phillips did with the Joker, right? That Joker film, which was a low budget movie, right? I mean, um, I chatted with him about it. I'm sure you can look up quotes, Todd Phillips talking about how he, he pitched them doing some sort of DC Black series. It would be these sort of one-off films that would be stories that didn't really fit with any sort of larger continuity that were like smaller movies where you could explore a part of that universe. Um, and the fact that that movie did so well, you know, from being praised from a, a, a you know, in terms of at award season, I think is, um, proves his concept was was the right way to go. And people forget, Todd Phillips came from independent film. You know, he I knew him back in the day when he was making documentaries. He famously has that um, frat house documentary that played Sundance and then never was released. So um, I think you can find it on YouTube. Um, what about Mank? What's that? What about Mank? Mank, yeah. I don't know how you make a Mank, you know? Like, here, here's the thing, I look at Mank and I'm like, I love Mank, but I, went to film school and I've seen Citizen Kane a hundred times and I've read books about Citizen Kane and one of my one of my favorite DVD commentaries is the one that Roger Ebert did for Citizen Kane. Um, so I know a lot of the backstory and I feel like it's almost impossible to watch Mank. You have to watch Citizen Kane. Maybe watch Citizen Kane first and then watch Mank and then re-watch Citizen Kane. Um, but yeah, I think Mank is incredible. You know, um, but I think it's for, I think Mank is for film nerds. I mean, I think it's brilliant that David Fincher was able to get that film made in the way that he made it. You know, it's sort of an, it's sort of a story about the genre made within the style of the old school genre, um, but with modern tools and then sort of laced with political commentary, maybe a bit too heavy handed at times, um, but, um, I, I really enjoyed Mank, but it's not that's not a mainstream audience movie. So kudos to uh, kudos to Netflix for that. Um, but yeah, most of I wouldn't say that. Not, you know, I like to be an optimist. So I don't know that ninety nine percent of the studio movies are bad. Maybe it's more like ninety seven. Um, we can we can quibble about the percentages, but you know, stuff leaks through. That could be an ongoing podcast. Uh, why 99% of movies are garbage. It's really documenting all the mistakes that filmmakers make. I think, I think one that I've seen as a trend that I think I failed to mention in the previous video was the gender swapping of, of characters. I think that, um, I mean, you know, I, I, I've seen how people think that that's a, well, we'll just do a female Terminator. Or we'll just do a female, you know, a, a female version of X. 
I always think it it's better to start with an original character, and have and 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 approach it approach a film that way. Um, I find it kind of pandering on on Hollywood's part to just we're just going to do this franchise, which we already know is proven success, and we're going to gender swap the lead. I think I, I think that's lazy. I think it's pandering to a certain audience, and that audience may not even really be there. Uh, and I think that that fans of those franchises completely see through that. And it's it's um, you know I mean the the latest uh, the, the Mad Max movie that we did that that they did uh, recently, um, Fury Road. He's really kind of the side character, but. What Charlize Theron did, she created this amazing new character. I think they kind of, that was maybe the a right way of doing that. The wrong way might have been the, the you know, Terminator film, Dark Fate, um, which I'm not sure who loved that movie. Um, I know it didn't do too well at the box office. I mean, um, Sarah Connor is already um, an amazing character. I don't know why you need to, you know, uh, flip things uh, and, and gender swap. I think again, I, I think audiences see, audiences see through that. Um, an example we talked about this earlier was, um, you know, one that thankfully they'll hopefully never do, which is Back to the Future. There has been rumblings of bringing the Back to the Future series and doing a reboot of Back to the Future. There was a, a rumor years ago, and I pay very little attention to rumors because most of them, we all know, are BS. But there was a strong rumor that Justin Bieber was going to be in a reboot of the Back to the Future series. But that's a franchise you, I don't think you could ever, you could ever gender swap the lead, the lead, like, and call that lead Mandy McFly and having some sort of weird relationship with a younger version of her father would be very awkward. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't work. And, and then there are cases where gender swapping is irrelevant. Um, for example, the upcoming Dune movie um, with Timothy Chalamet, there's a character named Dr. Liet Kynes, which I've read the novel, obviously seen the uh, 1984 David Lynch film, the gender of that character is absolutely irrelevant. Not relevant to the character whatsoever in, in that case. Um, uh, maybe in, in, in some ways can kind of add to something. When you're doing it just to pander to an audience, audiences see through it. I, I, really, see, I really feel that when you are pandering, um, whether it's queer baiting or you know, gender swapping characters or race swapping, it's lazy. It's lazy. You know, I'd rather see more original characters that are, are you know, maybe by female creators, black creators. Where are their voices? If you're simply taking, you know, Creators who have done things and just changing the gender or race, I find is lazy in that. And, and I, I think that audiences, they're, they're, they're not really in favor of it, you know? Um, it, it, it seems to not be working. And I, I, think, I think if Hollywood just leaned a little bit into originality, 
a little bit more into originality and took some risks with new creators. See, that's the thing that I think people don't understand is that the original creators of those characters, they get money, right? They get money. And so I don't understand why there's not more of an effort to find people who have created original characters um, that are all across the spectrum of ethnicity or gender and, and make and, and make movies with those characters, right? I mean, the original creators of those properties would profit. So I, I think pandering is probably a, a, a huge mistake and underestimated how savvy audiences are that they see through it. So if I come in and say, I wanna do a male version of Heather's or Jennifer's body or uh, Mean Girls, you know, I mean, hey, there's male, there's male bullying, there's all sorts of stuff, so it's John's body, okay? Sure. So, <laughs> that's, not, that's not probably gonna work? Or it's I, so I blatant know. that I'm flipping it? Here's the thing, I've seen that story. So I've seen those stories. Changing the gender is not gonna, is sort of, you know, make me care about the character, because the point is, is this, I, you know, I, I identify with so many characters that aren't me. Right? And I think that you have to create something that comes from the essence of what that character is. Ripley is a character I loved as a kid. Ellen Ripley, played beautifully by Sigourney Weaver in two and a half good movies. But, but, but you know, I, I, I think that just the, the, the sort of, you know, I think it's just lazy to do that, but it's an opportunity for an audience to identify with someone that isn't them. And I feel like you have to, as an audience member, be capable of seeing the world through someone else's eyes. I, and I, I've said this before, I don't know if I've said it in, a, but in another video, but like, you have to, as an audience member, have the ability to identify with someone who's not you. That's how you know even the storytelling is great. If you can take just sort of a regular dude like me and I can identify with a woman who's maybe not a woman who's white, who's maybe not a woman from the United States, who's maybe a woman that's going, that to me is great storytelling. I would say another film that I thoroughly loved, Amelie, the French film Amelie, right? Okay, not a woman, I don't speak French, you know? A lot of her experiences very different from mine, but I identified with her. I was on her journey. Uh, and so that to me is, you know storytelling is great when you know vastly different people can identify with someone that is not, is not themselves. I don't need to see me reflected in a film. In fact, I prefer not to. You know, I wanna see someone new and interesting and different and I think that what's lacking in the storytelling is, is, is making these stories universal so the gender and ethnicity is irrelevant. It should be irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, just you had said earlier about the, the Marty McFly character turned into yes. Andy McFly. And you're right, it, it, it wouldn't work for the, especially for the one fact of, of flipping it with the dad. Now, to have a Biff character that's female, that's bullying her, that actually would be interesting. 
and 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 then her sort of going on this journey and playing in a band. See, now you're being like a studio executive, <laughs> and you're you're pitching the female Back to the Future. Please, please, please. I will say this to camera, which I know my eyeline is you, but I'm going to say to camera, please, if you're a studio executive and you are watching this, do not ruin Back to the Future. Do not ruin Back to the Future by making a female Back to the Future. It would be terrible. Think about it deeply. This is not a good idea. Seek out original ideas from original creators who have original stories to tell. Please. Please. So I don't have to do a third version of this video, please. Why are there so many bad sequels? There's so many bad sequels because I feel like the essence of what made the original so interesting is the thing that's not really focused on. Usually what's focused on in a sequel is more and it's more spectacle not the thing that made it compelling to begin with. I think the way to answer this question is to look at the sequels that, that you know, succeeded. Um, films like The Godfather 2, right? Godfather 2, you know, was an even more complex film than the original Godfather. It, it tells, it, it plays with time where you're, you're having two stories being told simultaneously, the story of Vito Corleone, his rise to power, uh, you know, along with, you know, the, pre <clears throat> the present day Michael Corleone, who's, you know, you're seeing his story play out in present day that the story's being told. Um, and, and it's also different and it's original in the same way that the first Godfather was original. I could apply that same thing to Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back ended on a cliffhanger. The original Star Wars ended with this triumphant ending, the good guys win. When did the good guys ever lose in a fairy tale? Generally never. But The Empire Strikes Back did that. It didn't even tell a complete story. You know, and at the time you had to wait three years to, to see what the conclusion of that story would be. So doing something original and different rather than more of the same which would have been, let's have another Death Star, which of course they did twice more in Star Wars films. You know, I mean, maybe three times if you want to count Rogue One, but going over old territory is boring. And I feel like what you need to do is in the same way that the original film was a risk in doing something original, if you're going to do a sequel, you also need to take risks and do something different. Um, I would I would say that um, this doesn't apply as much, but with Alien and Aliens, um, Alien directed by Ridley Scott, um, Aliens, uh, James Cameron, one's more horror set in outer space, the other one is action movie. More Aliens, right? But it's a different type of film. Um, and a continuation of that story told um, with, with some originality. That's another sequel that holds up. But so many other sequels that I have not named are terrible for the very reason that they just try to give you more of what was in the first one rather than, you know, defy your expectations. And, and that I think has to do with 
fear on the part of the filmmakers and not really trusting the audience. I think you need to trust the audience that they want to see these beloved characters from the first film in new and different situations, things that are challenging to those characters. And, and you don't often see that in sequels. It's just more. I think that's lazy. As much as the Fast and the Furious movies are financially successful, I don't know if you could call any of them critically acclaimed. Those films tend to do well, but it's just more craziness. It's more over the top. It's more. In the last one, they go to outer space. How much more over the top can you get? It's just, it's ridiculous now. I mean, at this point, just take, you know, a friend of mine once suggested, just take the drivers from Fast and the Furious and put them in the Transformers. Cars. They're driving the Transformers cars. Why not? Combine franchises. It would at least be original, right? But I, I think if you're going to do a sequel, you've got to do something different and original because that's keeping with the characters and you need to challenge the characters in ways they were not challenged in the first film. And I'm not saying that that's something easy, but when you look at what a successful sequel is, compared to one that is completely forgettable, they made a The Fly 2. The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, they made a sequel to it. Uh, Gina Davis's character dies in like the opening scene. No one, there, I, there's many sequels I could, I could name off the top of my head. You would not even remember that there was a sequel. The Highlander, Highlander 2, there was a sequel. I think there's like nine of those. But the only one that really holds up is the first one. So it's, it's very tricky. It's very tricky. I, I feel like it's important to, to be original in the same way that the first one, what, what people liked about that, flip that, defy expectations. I'll go back several decades, but uh, Staying Alive and Saturday Night Fever, and I know I'm really dating myself here, but both fantastic films. Staying Alive to me, um, I'm mean, sorry, yeah, Staying Alive was was a little bit better in my sense than, than Saturday Night Fever just because I enjoyed John Travolta's journey staying in this crummy hotel. He's this hungry dancer. He meets Finola Hughes who's got this upper hand and can help him but there are strings attached. It's just a fantastic cast of characters and to me, I thought that the, the storytelling was was richer but again, that's, that's going back several years. It's not a franchise, I understand that. Some of viewers may not know that movie, but uh, I thought that the storytelling was, was, was way better, but. I, yeah. Do you remember that film? Yeah, I, I remember it, and uh, I wish I could forget it. Oh, you do? Okay, it was that but, bad? No, um, it just, that, I mean, that film, I just remember the phenomenon being the music. I remember it was R-rated and I could not go see it, so. Okay. You know, at the at the, the time the the uh, Saturday Night Fever came out. Sure, sure. Uh, yes, I think I remember that too. But I think I saw it when I was a little bit older. But the Staying Alive, for me, just I thought that the continuation of his journey as this like you know here he was this hotshot back home, but then he goes to the big city and right. he's just this small fish in this very very treacherous pond where no one's trustworthy, and everybody has their own agenda. And the, girl, the good girl, Cynthia Gibbs, 
she actually seems like the best care and he's like whatever with you because she can't she can't get him anywhere mm -hmm. so i just thought it was just a great play on on things but yeah i i realize it's not a franchise but, <laughs> um that's a great cameo from sylvester stallone in the beginning by the way so i mean look here's 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 a, another reason to me that sequels tend to suck is that the first film generally is is made to not be a series the first film is 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 being made to tell a story and it's usually being made for a reason that this is there, there's there's meaning behind it there's purpose on on behalf of the filmmaker that wants to tell a story that has themes that are woven into the film that that the filmmaker wants to express so generally an original film that ends up being a, a you know part of a series unintentionally you know that that original film is being made out of some reason that that is artistic and sequels are made for money so by you know by that very you know because of that dynamic sequels are made for money original films that end up being part of a series are usually made to express something an artist is trying to say um that always mucks up what a sequel will be interestingly yes i we're going to come back to star wars george lucas um had alan dean foster come up with a story for a low budget independent sequel to star wars which was to be called splinter of the mind's eye um it's it ended up being a novel you can find it used in a bookstore yeah a bookstore probably a used bookstore you know go into one they're great books are these things it's like the internet but on really thin slices of wood try it someday in any case this book was written to be a low budget sequel to star wars because what george lucas wanted to do is you know if star wars bombed he wanted to make a small indie follow-up to that movie to continue the series uh, and he wanted it written in a way that that could be done inexpensively it's it's really interesting to see what what star wars might have been if splinter of the mind's eye was made as a low budget indie movie um uh, there's love to see a lot of those but uh, but 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 you know i i truly believe that sequels because they are made purely because accountants at a studio say this will make money because if it makes 40% of the original it'll be in profits if we scale the budget to this which is why the budgets generally for sequels are less money being spent than the original uh, you know because there is a formula used by studios to say well the movie made x the first movie made x if we scale the budget to this and it just makes even 40% of the original will be in profits um you know that old formula is different these days now with um uh with so many other pathways for films to make money but but generally the sequel the budget is less did you see wonder woman 1984 yes i saw wonder woman 1984 okay uh first off did you used to watch the show 
back in the I day. did I did used to watch the Linda Carter show uh -huh. and I love that show. Okay. Uh it's 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 fun. It's you know, it's wholesome. Um there's a weird subtext I didn't notice when I was a kid, but now I see it. If you know something about the history of Wonder Woman and, and that character. But uh but yes, I saw Wonder Woman and I did see Wonder Woman 1984. Is this PG-13? Can you tell me the subtext? Well, it's all about it's all about BDSM and fetish stuff. It was always like Wonder Woman getting tied up or Wonder Woman tying up with the lasso. Gotcha. You know, whoever the adversary was to make them tell the truth. Okay. It was, um, this is not an original thought of mine. This is all very well documented. Go down your own rabbit hole on the internet, but uh, feel free to jump off okay. at some point. So aside from the S&M angle to it, um, mm -hmm. which that's its own show, what what do you what do you think uh, fell short in 1984, the second? I, I think what fell short was uh, was logic on behalf of the filmmakers. I mean, they really there was a, the the thing that really fell short was a believability. Um, you know, you can wish things and they come true. I think it's kind of a maybe an idea that should have been vetted. It sounds kind of sounds kind of dumb to me uh, like it just I just didn't believe it whereas yeah I believe a woman who's an Amazonian could be imbued with these powers but Wonder Woman isn't Wonder Woman because of her powers she's because of her because of her character and her morality um, because of her commitment to you know defending those that are powerless you know against the from the powerful and I feel that that essence of her character was kind of captured maybe a little bit in the opening scene, which I thought was kind of cute and clever. And, and the opening scene of Wonder Woman 84 is kind of harkened back to a, a Richard Donner Superman, you know? I, 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 I enjoyed that. It was kind of cute and goofy. I'll take it. It's fine. Once it got into the, the, the main plot with uh, Pedro Pascal, it just sort of defied logic. And, and the, the way that, that uh, you know, you know, Chris Pine's character was brought back. It was I just thought it was ridiculous. I I don't I don't know if the gender was reversed. It was done the other way. It might have worked. It might even be somewhat offensive. You know, sort of like if they made a female Back to the Future. Let's say if they they rebooted the franchise. Right. Let's say we're going to reboot the franchise Back to the Future. Let's just think about how we would do that, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's a female Back to the Future. Sure. And Marty, her name is Mandy, right? And she goes back and there's a sexual tension between her dad or who will be her dad, a younger version of her dad. I don't think that will work. Yeah, that's a little creepy. It's a little creepy. So maybe it's a really good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing that Back to the Future franchise may be one of the only franchises that will not be rebooted. Because if you did reboot Back to the Future with a female Mandy Right. And well, I guess it could be Doc Brown. Um, not gonna work. It just doesn't work. Sure. Please, Hollywood, realize that it's not going to work. Because we've seen these franchises get rebooted. And it's disheartening to me when you see the number of movies made. It's always based on pre-existing material. And the reason Hollywood does this is because ideas must be vetted in some form. It was a play. It was a novel. 
It's a franchise, which is generally the answer. It's a franchise that's existed for 80 years, 50 years, 40 years, whatever it is, right? Like it's vetted. If you're gonna invest that kind of money, you know, it's just, it's, you know, you wanna make sure you have your best chance of being profitable. So I understand from their thinking, but it really does, it does quell what might be some amazing original ideas. That's why I, 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 I'm upset that we may never see a type of filmmaker like a George Lucas again, of creating a fantasy world from nothing um, as an original series of movies. I mean, Star Wars was certainly inspired by everything from Marvel Comics, Doctor Doom's character, Darth Vader, um, from Flash Gordon, uh, the serials, um, from uh, Dune, the book by Frank Herbert. Uh, you, you know, it was inspired by so many things. It's like a blender of all this cool shit into something that's original. And risk is not something Hollywood likes. Let's talk about killing iconic characters. When is it okay? When is it a horrible mistake? I think it's really important if you wanna retain the audience for a franchise, how you kill off an iconic movie character. Absolutely critical. And there are places in movie history where it's been done right, and there are places where it's been done completely wrong and it's been bungled. I, I, it, it's it's upsetting to me. I mean, uh, first of all, the death of an iconic fictional character is already upsetting just on its face. Let's talk about a case in which it was done incredibly well. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you're taking Leonard Nimoy's character, Spock, who he'd played, you know, for decades by then, and you're now killing off this character. You're killing off Spock. It's handled so well. It's not a wasteful death. Spock dies in an act of self-sacrifice, trying to save the crew of the Enterprise, which he'd done many times before, and skirted death. Now he's, you know, dying in the engine room of the Enterprise, facing his best friend, Jim Kirk. Because the important thing to remember, and this is something for screenwriters to keep in mind, is that the death of the character is not about the person doing the dying. It's about the reaction of the characters that love the character that's, that's going through and experiencing their death. And so what we got to experience as an audience was two longtime friends, and in an act of self-sacrifice, Spock is dying, and he gets to say his final words to Kirk. And Kirk gets to see his friend. And in addition to that, that scene is followed up with a funeral with some glorious music and, and I mean, we didn't know at the time that they were setting up a sequel, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, which kind of gives it away that Spock might be coming back. But be that as it may, no one's ever dead in, in fiction, but the way that that death was handled with was handled with such respect for all the characters involved we got, it was a satisfying in the sense that we experienced the love that James T. Kirk has for his friend Spock. And then the reactions of people 
who loved Spock and, and how they were affected by his death. His death had meaning. Conversely, one of the worst deaths ever handled in movie history was the death of Han Solo in The Force Awakens. You know, many people were upset with The Last Jedi and how Luke Skywalker's character was handled, but the thing that lost it for me was Han Solo's death in The Force Awakens. It's not done in any sort of act of self-sacrifice. There isn't a moment where other characters can react to Han Solo's death. He's simply, you know, dispensed with by his own son, Ben Solo, with a lightsaber to the heart and then falls down an endless chasm. Generally falling down an endless chasm is the kind of death that usually a villain experiences. Leading cause of death amongst villains. I'm sure there's an infographic somewhere on the internet that will tell you this because that's how the Emperor died in the original uh, Return of the Jedi episode six. That's how villains go out. Falling into an endless chasm, we don't really see the bloodiness, it's off screen. That's how a villain goes out. And to have Han Solo die in that way and not have a last moment with Chewbacca, his loyal friend, to not have a last moment with Princess Leia or Luke Skywalker, the audience was completely betrayed of any meaning for that death, was betrayed by not being able to see our beloved characters who just, if you're watching all the movies in, in order, a few hours ago was alive and well and saving the universe. And my God, if there was a child and we had just finished watching Return of the Jedi, I don't know that I'd want to skip to the next movie to see what happens. Because what happened, how the character of Han Solo was treated in his death in The Force Awakens was offensive to me and told me that this franchise was in the wrong hands. Because you can't take a character like that and have him go out that way. You know, it's not, it's not a bad thing and this used to be, yes, it's a Hollywood trope. You know, riding off into the sunset was was a fine way to go, right? It worked for Shane. It worked, it worked for many iconic Hollywood films. We're gonna ride off into the sunset. Maybe we don't need to see the death. We can imagine other adventures with that character, but their story has been told and they can ride off into the sunset. But if you're actually going to kill an iconic character, it needs to be done with some level of respect. And every way that that could have been handled in a much better way, which would be the, to have some final words. Um, they could have even done it in that movie. He could have been mortally wounded by Ben, thinking he could have turned his son back from the dark side to the, to, to the light. And he was mortally wounded. And you can imagine a scene with Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia over, you know, a dying Han Solo and what the words that might have been said, we'll never see that now. So I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just offended by that. And so I think that that's, if you look at those two cases of Spock and his sacrifice in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, just go watch that scene. And then you compare it with the scene of Han Solo, meaningless, without even a funeral, 
And even though the when 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 Ray returns and you know there's the knowledge that Han Solo, you know, is dead, she she just goes to to hug Ray, not not like you know Chewbacca who she's known for decades. I that I don't understand. So I really question the thinking of some of the people in charge who are overseeing some of these beloved franchises um, and how that affected not just children, who these movies are really made for children, or for older dudes like myself who saw the classic films as a kid and would at least like these characters to be treated with some level of respect. George Lucas famously consulted a child psychologist when he toyed with the idea of making Darth Vader the father of the hero of his movie, right? He, he was, I don't know, I wanna see how this is going to affect kids. Was there any vetting done by how this might affect the audience if you're gonna handle this death in that way? And in each of the sequel trilogy movies, the deaths of the characters are, 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 are handled with this, not, not using what I would consider to be a respectful death, which is there needs to be someone to react to that death that is meaningful in that, in that character's life. And of course, Spock's best friend in the universe was Jim Kirk. So when he made that sacrifice, it was meaningful. And Han Solo's sacrifice seemed like a waste. Something else that occurs to me also um, related to Star Wars. Yes, a recurring topic in conversations that I will have with you and that I have with my friends often. Uh, you know, maybe it's a form of therapy. But, uh, but what was interesting was that when George Lucas was mapping out the story for The Empire Strikes Back, he realized that the audience would never believe that you would kill Luke Skywalker. So you have this lightsaber duel at the end of The Empire Strikes Back and it's Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader. Where's the tension? Because we already know that he's making a trilogy. You're not gonna kill off Luke Skywalker. So there's really no drama or tension in that scene. So what Lucas did, he's like, okay, since they, the audience is not gonna believe that I would kill Luke Skywalker, what if the real drama, the real threat, is that Luke might turn to the dark side. And because he, he, he doesn't listen to Yoda's advice, he doesn't complete his training, he goes off as, as, as not a fully trained Jedi and faces his greatest nemesis, who he then learns at the end of the, after losing that fight, that it's his father, could he turn to the dark side? And, and George Lucas believed that, the audience might believe that he would turn to the dark side. And, and therein lies the tension. Whereas many of the lightsaber duels that take place in, in the sequel trilogy are, are kind of meaningless. So it's important for these characters, and I would say that if you're a Disney shareholder, you probably care even more. If you want a franchise to, to continue to exist and be profitable, and you wanna sell more Han Solo shirts, and whatnot, that, that the deaths of iconic movie characters be treated with respect and 
It's an opportunity not just for the fictional characters that love that character in that world to say goodbye, it's an opportunity for the audience to say goodbye as well. Reminds me of a film uh, I watched recently, I think, or late 90s, early 2000s, and it's about a Hollywood producer, and it shows a test screening. And Sean Penn is one of the, the characters in the film playing him. You know, he is Sean Penn in the movie. And it's the famous thing of, at the end, he gets killed, but does his dog. So they show it to this test audience, and they're horrified. And it's a horrific scene, it's awful. And so that is the big dilemma in the film. Do we keep that scene in? And I think Robert De Niro plays the Hollywood producer. I think it's called like What the Hell Happened or something like mm -hmm. that. It's got an all-star cast. But where I'm going with this is test screenings and audience feedback. If you feel this way and other fans do as well, why was nothing done? Why, why was the respect given to one character dying not so for the other? I mean, I mean, there's... Um... There's actually an um, interesting documentary that I just saw about Alan Ladd Jr. called Laddie. Uh, it's it's uh, actually uh, made by his daughter. And of course, Alan Ladd Jr. was instrumental in getting Star Wars made. But he famously gave a lot of notes to, to movies, um, like The Exorcist and whatnot. Like he would give very small notes. He wasn't like telling filmmakers what to do. He was more like, okay, we're, we're watching this in a screening room and like, okay, but there's this element missing. Sometimes it's, you know, it's important to take that step back. Um, and I do believe that test audiences, test audiences can actually help improve a film. Um, I know that, uh, you know, for example, you know, I mean, they call them focus groups. Um, Quentin Tarantino has a more colorful, colorful term for focus groups, he calls them fuckus groups, but <laughs> I know I said I wouldn't swear. Um, but but uh, but I think that I think that it's important to, you know, to to keep those kinds of feelings in mind. You know, there's a lot of feelings wrapped up in, in an audience's experience with this. That's why I think these these death scenes are so so critical, the approach to it. I, I'm just surprised that the legacy characters from the previous trilogy, which if you're doing a marathon are just, you know, were treated so poorly um, that there, there wasn't as much thought given to that, you know? Um, I, you know, you people have invested, you know, we're, we're talking about the movies here, but also we're also talking about there are comic book stories about these characters. There are stories I've made up in my mind about these characters. Yes, when I played with action figures when I was a kid, you know? Um, there are stories we made up in our heads. There are novels, there are radio plays. There are all sorts of stories that this that these iconic characters have you know, have, have participated in and, and we've experienced those. We, there's a lot invested. So the callousness with which that was done is shocking to me to this day. I tend to connect with people. The easiest way I connect is through a passion for film and all types of film. I really am. I do think it's important that we have a balanced media diet. Oh, what is that? A balanced media diet is absolutely critical. In the same way that what we put into our bodies 
is just as important. If you lived only on fast food, say Hollywood blockbuster movies, I find that, um, first of all, if you only ate McDonald's, there's already been a movie made about that and it doesn't do good things to your body, right? Like fast food, greasy food, not good for you. Balance. And I feel like we don't pay enough attention to our media diet. And the media diet has to be, yes, fine, I'm gonna go see that Marvel movie, right? I'm gonna go see that movie that, a lot of movies these days, they're just like theme park rides. They're not movies, right? They're, they're selling products. And I'm gonna balance that out by seeing a really amazing documentary or a small independent film made by a filmmaker I've never heard of, put out like by a Gravitas Ventures or something, or a 1091, or A24, one of these other companies, A24 is Warner Brothers, that's another story, but. The Orchard. The Orchard, yeah. A24 is very good taste, if you ask oh, me. Oh, they do, yeah. I, I, I really do love their, the, their, how they curate the films that they put out, or an IFC, right? Participant, like, yeah. Yeah, like, like have a balanced media diet. If you, there's a whole group of YouTubers that are on, that, that have made a living shitting on giant franchises. And I say, I agree with, first of all, I agree with many of them. Those franchises are terrible. The modern incarnations of some of these franchises that have been around more than 20 years, they've, they've sort of run it into the ground. Um, but I feel like maybe you wouldn't be as, as upset about them if you had a balanced media diet. Meaning, meaning, yeah, I'll see the latest whatever forgettable big blockbuster movie, but because I have seen some smaller film, this is a weird example, Psycho Goreman, um, <laughs> you know, or um, a movie, a documentary, I would highly recommend called Clapboard Jungle, which is about, um, it, it's about a filmmaker's journey, uh, trying to, you know, actually find a way to make money in this in crazy industry, I think you need to have a balanced media diet. And that's at least what my mission is with Film Thread is we tend to champion filmmakers who make these smaller movies because there are plenty of other websites that cover Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, Disney, right? Um, those are all one company, if I, right? Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, Disney, that's all one company putting out the stuff that really is a monopoly. It's, un, it's, it's unfortunate that these big blockbusters have that. Um, but but it, it, those are okay to see, but you should not only see those. It, it's just like, you know, with, with it, like see one of those and then see a smaller film. See one of those, see a documentary. See one of those, see another documentary. Like break it up and really look like, whether it's like you're scrolling through iTunes or Vudu or whatever, one of those services where you can purchase or rent movies and look at the, you know, video on demand stuff that's just come out, you're gonna find some incredible stuff. And and that's where I feel very fortunate. And that's part of our mission um, is to say, look at these movies, because if you only lived off the giant franchise films, you will find only disappointment. And so, and so break it up a bit. Maybe you won't be as upset about that. So um, ha have a balanced media diet. So there's four food groups right. and there's four, like, you know, you have your yes. blockbusters, you have your documentaries, you have your art house, and then maybe something with subtitles. Of yes. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I actually, you know what? I will say this. I put subtitles on when, when I don't have to because you learn so much. When I watched Game of Thrones, I knew all the characters' names because I watched it with, with the closed captioning on. 
uh, it's great. It's it's really it's really fantastic. So I, I re actually recommend closed captioning, even if it's a film that's in your the the language that you're familiar with, your native language. It's, it's uh, you, you you you'll you'll learn more um, because especially because a lot of it is like you'll get some of the direction that's directly out of the screenplay, right? Like like it's really useful. And thinking like a writer, I think that watching a movie with closed captioning on in English, even if you are an English speaker, is really useful. Uh, so I tend to do that. I don't know, is that, I don't know if that's a thing, I do it. Uh, my thing, my, I have friends who think I'm crazy for doing it. I find it incredibly, um, you'll learn a lot more about what you're watching. I like ideas that uh, provoke my sensibilities, you know? Um, I like some something, uh, a piece of art that will challenge me. Um, I know that there's, uh, you know, I, I feel that like there's a, a lot of, um, you know, to me, fiction, fiction is all about um, uh, being able to identify with whoever or whatever is on screen. Whether that person that I'm seeing in this work of fiction, whether it's a book, movie, television show, whatever it is, I don't need to be that person. I just need to identify with that person. It may not be my same gender, may not be the same ethnicity or nationality as me, may not speak the same language as I, may not even be human, right? But the point of all fiction is that we identify with the protagonist and it doesn't have to match who I am. In fact, I prefer that it usually doesn't. I mean, I remember being mocked uh, when I was younger Whenever I play video games, I always chose female characters. I don't know why. I think I just like to look at the female form in a video game, but I always chose the female characters. Um, I, I tend to, um, I'm playing right now, the video game I'm playing and obsessed with, and it's been um, wrongly, uh, I think, mocked for a lot of its technical issues is the, the game Cyberpunk 2077, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant game. It really immerses you in this, you know, open world adventure game. Um, and I'm playing as a female version of a character, and I, I think it's I think it's amazing. I think that there's, um, I, I think I think we learn by identifying with someone who, who who doesn't match my my exact circumstances. I think a lot of this comes from my mother. Um, when I was younger, and I would just see whatever mainstream stuff was at the movie theater. I lived bicycle distance to a movie theater where I grew up in Royal Oak, Michigan, and I would ride my bike to the Berkeley Theater or the Main Theater um, or the Americana Theater, which was a further bike ride. But I would, I, would, I would go see movies and she would tell me, don't just go see movies that are at the mall theater. Go to the art house. She encouraged me to go to the Maple Theater, which was where their art house theater was. And I saw films that had subtitles, you know? I mean, I grew up, watching a lot of uh, uh, Toho monster movies, right? And, and you know, I, I, uh, Japanese television shows. So I had this, you know, by the time I was like in my late teens, early 20s, I'd seen a lot of foreign films and a lot of, a lot of, of just different types of movies across the board, not just your traditional big mainstream movies like your Star Wars and your Alien and, and, and you know, Disney cartoons and whatnot. So back to having a, a balanced media diet, and uh, I think that's important. And I think it's important 
And I think I think I know when a writer's been successful, when someone that I would not have ever had that experience where I can just be totally with that person, um, experiencing the world through their eyes, and I'm I don't look like that person. I think that is really powerful to be able to create a character protagonist that anyone can identify with. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Here's a thought. Have movies lost their cool because television has become so good? So if you think back to growing up, TV yes. was was more yeah. restricted and, and everything yeah. cool happened in movies like Kramer versus Kramer. Ooh, there were some scenes that right. I wasn't supposed to see, but I saw them anyway. Right, right. Um, now you can see it all on TV. Yeah, I, I do think that television has succeeded so well when it comes to, you know, long form storytelling. I do think that there is a bit of abuse in that where I've seen series that were six episodes, six hours that would have made a really good two hour movie. Uh, but I, I think that there's an appetite for uh, this serialized long form storytelling and, and we become used to that. We become used to the binge watching. So going to the theater to see you know, a story that's gonna wrap itself up in hopefully two hours, um, maybe is not as satisfying. And even, you know, when you look at uh, the Star Wars films or the Marvel movies, it really is just, a con every Marvel movie is a continuation of the last Marvel movie in some form because we know there's gonna be Easter eggs. We know there's gonna be, you know, cameos from characters. So Marvel movies, in a sense, have become not only its own genre, but, you know, a, a sort of a form of long form storytelling. With the Disney Plus series, the, you know, those kind of filling in the blanks between movies. Um, but I think that television is, is great. I mean, television is where um, nudity in movies has migrated. There's hardly nudity in films anymore. I mean, it's, it's you know, you're, you're gonna sacrifice something at the box office if you choose to include adult themes in your feature film being released to theaters if there's nudity in it. You know, um, that has migrated onto television. You know, it's a golden, as Mr. Skin, who was recently on the Film Threat podcast told me, it's a golden age of nudity in television, not so much at the movies. Um, you know, there aren't like, the genre of teen sex comedy kinda doesn't even exist. People, people forget that the original Porky's film, such as it was, um, yes, it does feature nudity, but also there's a you know underlying message of anti-Semitism woven within that film that of course no one remembers, except for me. I remember this, I don't know why. I remember weird facts. But that, but um, you know, maybe this is also why television, part of the reason that television um, in a way is more popular than, than films. I don't know if anyone's ever done this study. I would love to see, because I think box office is, is an irrelevant metric by which to, to look at. It's something the industry uses as a piece of marketing. I don't like that box office is so important. It tends to be to Hollywood because it's, again, a piece of marketing. My mother who doesn't pay attention to the industry whatsoever, she knows what the number one movie at the box office is because it's used in the marketing of movies, right? 
But that's not an important number because that number is, is irrelevant because due to inflation, if adjusted to inflation, and you can look this up, Gone with the Wind is in the top films. Not whatever the, top, the purported top films are, right? Um, I, so, I, you know, because we're not privy to a lot of the data from these streaming services, we really don't know what is incredibly popular, but they wouldn't be making so many of these series if they weren't at least getting numbers that got the eyeballs they needed to be somewhat profitable. But, but we're, we're, but because we're as the general public not privy to those numbers, there aren't, we're not given, other than the people who have access to those, to that data, we're not able to learn the lessons from that. There are lessons to be learned about the failure of something like Terminator Dark Fate, right? There's a lesson to be learned there. I don't think Hollywood's quite learned the lesson yet. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's kind of how we learn, right? You see what resonates with an audience. Um, and box office is one barometer of that. Adjusted to inflation, I think, is, is the better way to, to report those numbers. Do you have more hope for the future of television or film? I, I certainly have hope for the future of television. There are, I, I think that statistically speaking, if I watch something on television and I vet that choice, the, you know, the idea that I'll have a good experience with a show based on recommendations, friend recommendations, tends to, tends to, to hit more often than not. With the movies, not so much. With the movies, it's probably 50-50 or less. You know, there'll be a decent experience if I know what I'm getting into. Um, I am a person that does enjoy a good, bad film. Why? Good, good bad films are uh, just, I mean, look, there's a certain kind of television that is made for stoners, right? I mean, like, I think a show like Archer, that's the animated show Archer, that's, that's like stoner TV. I mean, you know, most of the adult swim shows are for stoners, <laughs> right? There's sort of a good, bad, I mean, like uh, Tim and Eric, their show, it's kind of based on that, right? So, and there are films I, I tend to like, but I know that they're bad. Uh, trauma movies, uh, you know, by Lloyd Kaufman, one of the longest, you know, existing independent film studios is Trauma Studios. You know what you're getting into. You also should be aware that James Gunn from The Suicide Squad and the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, he began his career at Troma Studios. He wrote Tromeo and Juliet. So I, I kind of like, if I know it's gonna be bad, it's not like something that's gonna change my life, but I will laugh and I don't have to be fully engaged in it, except for you know maybe the scenes where there's lots of gore or violence, which you can always count on in a trauma movie. But that's the place where a lot of people cut their teeth is in the exploitation genre. Everyone from James Gunn, Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, who famously you know, worked for Roger Corman. Uh, it's a place you can play and it's okay to fail. And it's, it's, you know, and, and to learn the basics. 
I think it's just as important to watch a bad film and take the lessons from it as it is to watch a good film. So the why are 99% of movies garbage? Well, you know, sometimes they're sometimes garbage movies are made on purpose. There's a there's a big business in that. Just ask Lloyd Kaufman um, or Charlie Band, Full Moon Entertainment. You know, famously done most famously known for the Puppet Master series. Love the Puppet Master films. They're they're dumb fun. So, so I think it's kind of like just knowing what you, you know, you can't eat steak for dinner at every meal, right? Sometimes some fast food or quick meals are gonna work their way in. And that's what I consider a bad movie. Um, I just wanna know I'm getting one. Unlike Terminator Dark Fate, where I go into every movie hopeful, go into every movie hopeful, it's gonna be awesome. And it's, it's not. When an artist wins a Razzie, how much of it do you think was actually planned or none of it? I mean, does anyone really want to win? I don't, I don't know that anyone ever wants to win a Razzie. Um, I mean, uh, Showgirls won a Razzie. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, that film, actually, we look at it now, there's so much more going on in that film, Showgirls. Right. There are bad movies that age differently. Yeah. Maybe they were ahead of its time. They're ahead of their time. Like a film like the original Blade Runner, or a film like Showgirls that like there was much more going on beneath the surface. Uh, I mean, uh, the trans community in, in particular has embraced the movie uh, Showgirls as um, just having much deeper meaning. There's a documentary that discusses this that I highly recommend that you check out called You Don't Know Me, N-O-M-I. Check out that documentary that's a, a whole um, deep dive analysis of showgirls, a sort of re-examination of that. Uh, additionally, like why there's a whole fandom around showgirls, which I find fascinating. Uh, great documentary that, that breaks that apart um, and looks at it. Uh, but we just don't know like what's gonna, what's gonna age well with time, right? Like what's going to defy what will be a cult classic, which no filmmaker wants to win a Razzie or have a film that's called a cult classic because both of those things imply that you failed. And I don't think I've ever met a filmmaker that tried to make a bad movie. Although I will say this, John Waters has a great quote about that. John Waters said, you know, if you try to make a bad film, you can't fail. What does a good opening of a movie have to have? It's just really simple. I wanna know what's gonna happen next and I, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen the first five or 10 minutes of a movie and I don't wanna watch the rest of it. For a couple of years, I was a programmer at the Sonoma Valley Film Festival and um, was a program director and I watched films and you can tell within the first few minutes. I, you you wanna know what's gonna happen next. You have to be engaged. You, you have to be drawn in. It's gotta be something emotional. You have to connect. Um, and, and you just really have to know what hap what's gonna happen next. You can have like, I mean, look, you can have like a great opening and, and that can actually, if you don't have that great opening, it's not gonna propel the rest of the film because the middle of the movie can get muddled. I think middles of films are tough. But if you blow the opening, I mean, there's no point in watching the rest. I can't tell you how many 
first 10 minutes of movies I've watched. So you have to grab the viewer in the first 10 minutes. Um, and it really comes to, do I want to know, do I want to continue on the story with this, this character? Can you think of one that's like the perfect opening? That stands out as a model that you would never feel you could live up against? I see, my taste is so weird. I'm a terrible person to ask that question um, of what's a, what's a great opening. Uh, but I'll say that probably one of my favorite independent films of all time is Richard Linklater's Slacker. Um, it's a totally non-traditional narrative. It follows different people's stories sort of set in a day in Austin, Texas. It's very much a, a, the flavor of that town at that time. And I love that movie. I don't know what it is. I think it's, you know, some of the stories are more engaging than others, but just, just I want to live in that world. Um, so, so that's a terrible example. Um, because it's not a traditional um, narrative structure. It's a series of pieces of stories leading you through slice of life, truly slice of life, but God. Um, what are three mistakes that most filmmakers or screenwriters make in the first act of a film? I, well, I would say that the biggest mistake that I see that a filmmaker will make in the first act is uh, sort of a, a lack of world building to me. Um, I would say that this probably applies more to genre pictures. World building is incredibly important to set up those rules, set up expectations, and defy those expectations. Uh, and and if, you, if you have not established that, nothing in the, you know, the rest of the film is going to work. So in that first act, world building, incredibly important. What are you looking for in a story? What I always look for in a story is um, take me on a journey and make me feel something. I want to feel moved. Um, I don't have to agree with everything in the film, but I want to be taken on a journey where um, I'll feel different out the other side. I think the films that have always like impressed me the most are the ones that have just made me look at life differently. There's, a short list of films that fit that category. I would say that um, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is one for me that I remember when I saw that film when I was a kid, it blew my mind. It changed my, changed my perspective of the world. It has an incredible opening scene um, with that, that music blaring. It's just like, it's, it's that title sequence is so incredible. Um, but it also, there's a sweetness to that world. And um, I, it's, it's, it's such a it's such an original vision. Um, I don't know, like like I remember seeing that film and just feeling different afterwards. And and um, I mean that applies to other like more mainstream movies like a Star Wars, you know, or a Lord of the Rings. But make me feel something, make you know, move me in some way, um, and and surprise me, make me want to go on this journey. And then you know, if we're lucky. I've, I've, I have a changed perspective. What is the purpose of story? Wow, that is such a, that's such a, these are big questions you're asking. I, I, I really believe that the purpose of story is, is for us to experience things we may never experience in our lifetime. 
as a way for us to heal based on our own personal experience. So experiencing a story that may have to do with the death of a loved one may help myself deal with the loss of a loved one in my own life. I feel like there's almost films when I've talked to friends and they'll say they're going through some, you know, trouble, you know, whether it be work-related or, you know, um, love life or, or whatnot or something tragic that's happened, I often prescribe a movie because uh, th through the experience of a character in a film, we can help heal a part of ourselves. And that's what I think story is about to, to impart those lessons in a way that's safe. You know, I've never been to war. You know, I've never experienced what it's like to be um, in war. I've had relatives. My grandfather fought in World War II. He was in the Navy. I had an uncle who was in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, having never gone through that experience, I won't know what that's like. But having experienced films like Saving Private Ryan, Dunkirk, some of the great war films, Platoon among others, you know, uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon, um, like, I, I, you know, those visceral war films really put you in that seat. Full Metal Jacket by Stanley Kubrick, like, so that comes to mind. I'm grateful that I've never, you know, had that kind of experience. Um, but I, I do think that that um, really the purpose is to for to to teach us things and to hopefully teach us something about ourselves. Um, and a really good movie, it's just a, a very personal experience. That's why I think people get offended by bad reviews. And by that I mean, um, as someone who has spent a good chunk of my career as a critic, uh, what's weird is the reaction of people when they look at your reviews. For example, no one gets angry at someone who gives a bad review to a car in Consumer Reports or a bad review of a food from a restaurant, right? But when it comes to something like film, if you give a bad review, it's like a personal attack. But I, I believe I like when someone has a completely different opinion from my own. I feel it's an opportunity for me to learn something about that person. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't say to someone who disagrees with me about an opinion that I have about a film that they're wrong. I want to hear what their justifications are for how they came to that conclusion. But I do find it humorous sometimes that people will be angry for having a strong opinion about a movie. Um, I think that that's a personal choice. And um, I, I, so I find that very strange. Do you think that you're able to withstand um, punches more? Maybe some people are yeah, too sensitive? I, yeah, I do think that me not giving a shit is really helpful in the sense that it's like, it's like a, a shield that protects me from just not caring what other people think. I think that that's, I think the longer you think what other people think, that can be, that can be creatively crippling. And so I try to avoid that at all costs. Try to avoid like giving a shit what people think. I mean, you know, it's, it's um, a worthless exercise. I like that, writing a prescription for cinema. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I've had friends that are just like, oh, you're going through this. Oh, you should watch that movie with George Clooney up in the air. You just lost your job. That one was good. Jerry Maguire is probably good too. You know what I mean? Like life is a house. Yeah, just yeah, stuff like 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 it's just like um, yeah. I mean, you know, here's a prescription for you're going through this thing, having a problem, like an Ann Landers column, which I don't even know if that exists anymore, like an advice column, but you're prescribing movies instead of advice. Um, but yeah, no, there's certain movies like I'll watch over and over again that I think kind of helped me. I mean, I know for a fact, like it is, there is, there is such a thing as movie therapy. Um, and that's why I think that people, you know, that's why I think that this, this medium is not going away. It's certainly going to evolve in terms of the way we see it. Um, but, uh, take two steel magnolias, call me in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. My 10 favorite movies is an impossible question. And I would be like a, I, I would probably short circuit. I will tell you what one of my all time favorite independent films is, which is the original Slacker directed by Richard Linklater. Uh, that movie completely breaks your standard mold of a traditional storytelling, uh, you know, with three act structure. It's, it's a day in the life of Austin, Texas, where we meet all types of people in all walks of life, and they kind of have intersecting lives. Each story kind of crosses over into the next, and it's beautiful and absolutely sweet and inspiring. Um, that would be in my top 10 list. Another film would be 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, is probably for me a perfect film in the sense that uh, I saw it when I was five years old as a kid and it blew my mind and I, I, I probably watch it every few weeks. And by that I mean I uh, keep it on in the background while I'm working on, on other things, but 2001 A Space Odyssey is so inspiring, is so... Um, beautiful and then I mean it's it's a it's a true work of art and we don't see a lot of films that live up to you know the words true work of art these days and I and I t tend to notice something new about it every time I see it there's something fascinating about that film um, and and just the artistry, the the cinematography, the the way the, the way that these special effects in that film stand up to today. There was never a special edition of of two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey. Although, pro tip: if you if you get the film on iTunes, they will allow you to watch the film with the original nineteen sixty eight theatrical sound mix, which I strongly recommend. But that film inspires me. It, it, it just, it, it, I, it, I kind of turn inward whenever I watch that film and think about life and death and the cosmos and the unknown and all the unanswerable questions that we, you know, that religion attempts to, to answer for us um, that are truly unanswerable um, only perhaps by faith. And that, that film asks those questions without providing an answer, which I think is... Um, Terrifying. So I love that movie. Uh, the original Star Wars also has to be on that list. Um, 
uh, along with the Empire Strikes Back because at, at, at the time that they were made, when you go back to filmmaking in the 1970s, uh, it, those movies were dark. Another favorite I would add to the list, see I'm actually going to get to the list, um, is Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese. Um, and when you look at the films that were being made at the time in the 1970s, they were very dark. The themes were, you know, this is a post-Nixon era when, you know, really it was, it was, it was in, in the shadow of all the, you know, cultural, cultural upheaval of the 1960s and the 70s were the hangover from that and still films were very dark, um, even in the realm of, you know, science fiction. And George Lucas set out to, to kind of flip that and say, I'm gonna make a fairy tale for kids because there are no heroes in movies today. I mean, at least that's what he thought in the early 70s when he first began his journey of writing the original Star Wars film. So that one just stands out. And when I say the original Star Wars, the original cut that was theatrically released on May 25th, 1977, which I saw in a theater just a few days later, that original cut is just remarkable. Um, and famously, George Lucas did continue to cut even after it was only released on about, what, a dozen screens initially? And The Empire Strikes Back just sort of flipped that. Um, interestingly, when George Lucas set about working on the story for The Empire Strikes Back and determined that his heavy, which was considered to be, a, you know, in the initial writing of Star Wars, a small role, Darth Vader, he considered, I'm going to make this the main hero's father and present um, a dilemma that is, you know, in order to, you know, defeat the evil empire, I have to kill my own father. And he actually consulted a child psychologist to learn how this might affect children, how the idea of this might affect children. You know, we live in a time now where pop culture is consumed so quickly that a new Disney Plus series episode will come out on a Wednesday and we've dissected every part of it, found every Easter egg and discussed it to death within 24 hours of its airing. And the same goes with a film. It opens on a Thursday night, Friday, and by Monday, it's, it's, all, been, it's all been discussed. Um, at the time that, that films opened, when I was a kid and seeing movies, it was a discussion that lasted for, for some of these films years. Um, Logan's Run, I would add to that list, only as a, I don't really have a guilty pleasure. I'm just gonna say Logan's Run. Um, because I, I like the ideas espoused in that film. Yes, it's shot in a shopping mall in Dallas with futuristic escalators and cheesy special effects that do not hold up. Uh, but the performance by Michael York and Jenny Agutter is just transcends the poor special effects. Um, also an amazing score. But that film had a profound effect on me as a kid. Uh, and and I, I, I just love the ideas that were, you know, there's, there's a little bit of Brave New World in that, um, in Logan's Run, kind of borrows from that. 
and uh, the, the theatrical version of that movie with Michael York is very different than the novel uh, by William F. Nolan, which I read as a third grader and it, it really scarred me because it's such a different, the book and the movie are so vastly different. Um, I, you know, I, I, a top 10 list for me is just like so difficult to put together. I can talk about favorite films and those kind of change with, um, change with, you know, what my current thinking is about things. Um, so this is an impossible question, which is what I'm happy you're asking. It's really impossible for me, for me to, re to respond to that with a top 10. Um, but, but these are some of my favorites and the, and the reasons they, and they, they, they resonate for me to today. Now, if boyhood had come out when you were a child, do you think that would replace Slacker, is there something nostalgic about some of the, like, because, you know, for me, I loved Boyhood. Uh, it's not that I didn't like Slacker, but I thought Boyhood was a masterpiece. So do you think you would have, that would have been your, your one of your top 10? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I do think that many of the films from uh, that are in my top list are movies that I saw at a younger age, They because they left such a profound impression you know, films like Apocalypse Now, um, I think. And, and I would also say, I would add to that list, uh, uh, Pink Flamingos, John Waters. I saw that film when I was 16 years old. Uh, I, I, I got a car not because I cared about girls. I got a car because I wanted to go to movies. <laughs> so when I went to this, rep this repertory theater, did a John Waters tribute, and I saw Pink Flamingos, and it was shocking to me. I couldn't believe that people... That, that, you know, structurally speaking, I mean, yeah, I guess it follows three-act structure, structure, but there's so many shocking elements in that film. You know, in addition to, uh, you know, uh, Glenn Milstead, the, the drag queen divine, who is, you know, uh, probably one of the greatest drag queens in cinematic history, if that could be said. Um, but that movie had a huge effect on me when I was 16, and then I just, like, sort of went down a rabbit hole. I was fortunate enough to work at a video store that had some of his other films. I, I, Female Trouble might be a personal uh, favorite because it's um, it involves uh, Christmas Day and cha-cha heels, which I thought was so weird. I mean, John Waters kind of opened my world up to like, movies don't have to be this way. They don't have to be Hollywood films. So I would say everything from like Slacker being this small indie movie made by this kid Richard Linklater in Austin, Texas, you know, that, you know, uh, just huge effect on me to like John Waters, who's been a true independent his entire career to, truthfully, George Lucas is an independent filmmaker. You know, I mean, yes, he found funding in Hollywood, but his company, Lucasfilm, was not located in Los Angeles. He relocated to Marin County in Northern California, specifically to get away from Hollywood. I don't blame him. Um, but I would say that if there's, if there's a thread uh, that all the films that had an effect on me is they're all by very independent-minded voices. And my fear with modern Hollywood as it becomes more corporatized is that those voices will be lost. And the ability to express oneself in 
through cinema because it's so expensive, th th those voices will be lost. And, and that's what I have a real concern with. Um, and, and, and I see where the 70s filmmaking in Hollywood was very independently driven with this young group of filmmakers, everyone from Spielberg to you know, Lucas and Scorsese and uh, Coppola among others, young at the time. Um, they were these new mavericks in Hollywood uh, and truly had independent voices. I don't know if we'll see an era like that again. And it's, it's disheartening to me and, and I, I hope that there is some push to support these independent filmmakers. I do whatever I can with my, my own outlet, Film Threat. You know, we champion these small filmmakers, but they just don't get the support from the mass media like whatever the latest Disney, Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars thing is, which tends to consume all of the, consume the conversation of film for that week. And um, so that's kind of been my, kind of my life's work through Film Thread is just to elevate the, these smaller movies. I just wonder if we'll see that same era again. If you were the head of a movie studio, what five movies would you green light right now? Whoa. Um, if I was head of a movie studio and I could green light five movies, I don't know if this is cheating, but I would green light three movies, which would be to redo the sequel trilogy to Star Wars. I mean, maybe that could count as one. But um, I feel it was such a dissatisfying end to, I guess, what was intended to be a nine film saga. Although, who knows when you're watching this, maybe they'll do 12 films. Uh, there'll be another Star Wars trilogy. But I, 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 would, I would green light that because that's a safe bet and we would, we would do it right this time. Um, the other thing I would do is probably, probably Confederacy of Dunces, I think is a, is a classic book that, um, you know, a, a, a lot of people have, you know, there've been false starts to getting that made, that book turned into a movie um, another one would be the Chuck Palahniuk book, Survivor, which is a probably, you know, uh, you know, one of his greatest books has such an incredible scene set during the Super Bowl that if it's ever committed to film will be incredible. I don't really know how you could really make, it would, Survivor would have to be done almost in the way of Fight Club you know, just like with a big budget and just like not care uh, what people think. But it's, it's about a guy telling his story into the flight recorder of a plane where he's allowed, he's, he's taken his plane hostage. Um, he's this spiritual guru who has had been in trouble with the law, who now has commandeered a plane, you know, and gotten everyone off the plane. So he is literally telling his life story into the flight recorder. And it's what he's saying into the flight recorder, that's the story being told. Um, brilliant, it's, it's a book that I will read every couple years just to, just to remind myself that this is what can happen in, in writing. It's amazing, so I would, 
I would green like Chuck, green light Chuck Palahniuk's Survivor, which is famously where the 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 phrase "Suicide Girls" came from. Uh, that that name is you know the, the website was named after a, a line in that book. Um, is it that those type? It's sort of a goth. Yeah, it's sort of like oh, those suicide girls and uh, the founders of the Suicide Girls website took a you know that line and that inspired like oh, we're going to start a website based on that. Um, so that would be one that I would do. Uh, I you know I I'd like to see. I don't know that a studio needs to do this. I would like to see a documentary about Marsha Lucas. Marsha Lucas had such a profound impact on, on filmmaking in the 70s. You know, she was just respected by everyone from Francis Ford Coppola to Martin Scorsese to her husband, George Lucas. There would not be a George Lucas if not for Marsha Lucas. There's never been a deep dive, I believe, documentary about her speaking today about, you know, I, I, you can almost see there's like Hollywood before Marsha Lucas and after Marsha Lucas, the impact that she had. Um, there's, a, there's a rare, and I've never seen it, but I've read articles about, a rare rough cut of the first assembly of Star Wars, black and white, you know, taken from, you know, the dailies, they cut it together and it's just like, and it's an unwatchable film. It's terrible. The original Star Wars. I mean, there's like inappropriate humor, which kind of reared its head again in episode one, The Phantom Menace. Um, but you can see the, the choices that Marsha cut things out. There are things where just a few frames are cut and it changes the dynamic of a character, a scene, um, in the cantina bar at most at most Eisley. Before, you know, Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi meet with Han Solo and Chewbacca, uh, Han Solo's sitting with this attractive woman and just sitting with her and she gets up and walks away. Marsha Lucas cuts some frames, she's not there. She's not even in the movie. She saved that film in the editing. Many of the special effects in the original Star Wars. The reason they're so impactful is because they're not on screen for very long. So at the time that that came out, I mean, it was it was so fast paced, and a lot of the effects objectively didn't work because but because they were on screen for so brief a moment, it worked. So I'd love to see a documentary about Marsha Lucas that really, really details her contribution to film, not just Star Wars, but you know, how she was so widely res respected you know, by all the greatest directors of the 70s. Um, you know, and then after her parting ways with George, um, you know, she was basically ostracized. I mean, she was you know, working with her, was, she was just out of Hollywood at that point. Um, so, that one is a huge shame. Uh, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of others. There's just uh, so many. I would like to see um, the comic book, uh, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, that four issue series. You know, Zack Snyder was inspired by that when he made 
Batman v Superman, I, the thing that made The Dark Knight Returns so compelling was that it, it, it had all this history in it. It would be great to see that comic book turned, turned into a film. Um, an, another one, and maybe someone from Marvel is, uh, is if someone from Marvel watches this or listening, listens to this, this is a comic book that no one knows about. I bring up every once in a while. It's a comic book called Strike Force Muraturi. And it's about a group of people that have superpowers. They, they, that um, It's in a far future of, of the world where aliens invade and they're slaughtering humans and the humans are losing. So there's a program that's developed to give people superpowers. There's only one catch. You only live for about a year. So you don't know what kind of superpower you're gonna get. Um, you don't know how you're gonna help in this battle against these alien, these invading aliens, but uh, you only get to live for a year. So you're, you're, you're putting your life on the line. And sometimes you don't even live that long. So it focuses on the second group of heroes that have gone through this process. Um, it's, it's a series that, that Marvel did uh, back in the 80s Never forgot that story, thought it was really impactful, um, filled with pathos and drama. Um, a whole group of, I mean, it was, you know, it just a whole diverse group of characters, all this, like the, the, the world's at stake, um, but it wouldn't really fit into the Marvel Universe at all. It's, it, you know, because it's just sort of this separate universe, uh, but I'd, I'd love to see that. Um, I guess if I'm a Hollywood executive, I'm green lighting big budget, you know, franchise, films, uh, so um, maybe the Marsha Lucas documentary wouldn't necessarily fit into that all that well. But, you know, God, there's just so many I, I'd, I'd love to see, love to see made. What would you cancel? Well, I would have canceled probably maybe the last five years of franchise reboots there has almost universally not been one that's succeeded in a way where everyone is like, that was awesome. I mean, you know, just a quick example, like for example, Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, not The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. We don't really talk about that, that series of movies so much. The reason is there's no debate. There's no debate. People who don't like Lord of the Rings, I'm not a fantasy film fan. Right? And I wasn't a Lord of the Rings fan necessarily. I remember the Hobbit cartoon uh, by Rankin Bass back in the day, which used an early form of rotoscoping, which is interesting. But, but I was not a fan of Lord of the Rings per se. And that movie made me, that series of movies made me a fan. You know, it's incredible. And we don't really debate about that because there's not that much debate. They're objectively amazing films. If you're a hardcore Tolkien fan, yes, there are nitpicks but there's almost no debate about it. But I don't know that we'll ever stop debating the disappointment that, um, that was that Star Wars sequel trilogy. I, I feel like that is a debate that will just continue. I just wonder, will Hollywood learn the lessons? I would wanna go back in almost every franchise that was rebooted, um, Ghostbusters, Terminator, Dark Fate. Uh, you know, there's so many, um, you know, uh, did we need more Fast and the Furious movies? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it seems to me that these 
that these franchise reboots, I mean, in some cases, there has too much time has elapsed between, you know, they want to do another film and, and whatnot. It's just because the branding exists, right? There's that recognition, you know, like when they, you know, like when they name a movie after a familiar song, right? Like that's sort of a laziness on the part of, on the part of Hollywood. But yeah, I would, if I could cancel or wipe away, or if I could just do the snap that Thanos did, I would get rid of every franchise reboot post probably 92. What about A Star Is Born? Did you see the first one? Yeah, A Star Is Born. Well, that, see, but it's such a different approach because there's, you know, it's the music world has changed. It's about being invested in those characters. Um, that I don't really think fits in that category. I think that Star is Born is just a classic story that's just like, okay, it's this is familiar. The bottle's familiar. We're gonna put like a, maybe a, a slight different flavor. You know how like those, they have those different flavors of Coke, like vanilla, cherry, cherry vanilla, orange Coke, lime Coke, they do make that. Um, so it's familiar, but with like a, a, a twist and yeah, I mean, that, that uh, Star is Born movie with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga is pretty damn incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really don't have much to say about that one, you know, except good job, Bradley Cooper. As the head of a movie studio, what would be your mission? And what would it be called, by the way? What would your studio oh, be called? Oh, well, yes, it would be called Gore Film. Okay. That would be my movie studio. Mm -hmm. And I, I would... I mean, look, you have to tell stories where it's an amazing story without the superficial elements, right? There has to be something to say about, you know, our current climate. We live in such divided times. I don't know why there are so few films about that. Why are we so divided? Why is it that people living in the same country who all want the same things, what are, what, why are we so divided now? And there are so few films that are dedicated to that. You know, I, I do see a lot of documentaries and generally the, the documentary films of a political nature are generally, they're on the left or they're on the right. And I, it's, it's really disappointing because as the viewer, I would like to be able to come to my own conclusion rather to be led into one that you determined before you started making the movie. So I'm surprised that when you look at the kind of issues that films from the 70s, you know, were, were taking on very challenging issues, I don't know why we're not doing that now. Uh, so much of Hollywood now is about dictating some sort of predetermined message. It's not entertaining. I don't mind if some of that is, is woven in, but I do mind being told how to think. And I, I, I think it, that if, if, if I was head of a studio, I'd not be telling my audience how to think. And I would certainly be listening to what the audience wants. And maybe giving them something they didn't expect that I hope they really like. But certainly not pounding them over the head with some sort of agenda, you know? I, I think I think we're more alike than we are different, and I don't know why we're not reminded of that.
So that would, that would be my mission. And to tell original stories, giving opportunity to small indie filmmakers, to tell original stories, taking some risks. Not every science fiction movie needs to have over-the-top spectacle with the fate of the universe at stake. When you look back at some of the old Star Trek episodes, there's so few special effects shots, right? It's Star Trek really delved into the realm of ideas. And I'd like to see science fiction come back to dealing in the realm of big ideas and you don't always need big spectacle or big budgets to tell those stories. So do you think Hollywood can learn lessons from, let's say, art house cinema or foreign films where there's a subtlety, there may still be a message, mm -hmm. but it's, it's letting it breathe, it's letting the viewer discover it, whether they're gonna agree with it or not. Whereas maybe in Western culture, we're beating them over the head. It's so overt that there's no hiding it, that it's forced. I, I, I'm just curious what- Yeah, I think, I think we've forgotten, you know, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. You know, I, I, you know, I guess so much of films today seem like they kind of want to break that mold. There's a reason that mold works. It's kind of embedded in human DNA. You know, that kind of around the fire storytelling is is universal, and I, and I, that seems to seems to have been forgotten um, lately. Um, in trying to break that mold. I'm just, I'm just, you know, especially when we see, you know, the hero's journey for so many female lead characters, I think a disservice is being done to um, people who look up to those characters because it's made to look easy. People forget how much failure there has been in some of the iconic movie characters. Everyone from Luke Skywalker to Rocky, people forget. In the original Rocky film, Rocky loses. He loses the fight. Now he gains respect, which is more of what that film is about, but he lost the fight. In the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones loses. <laughs> He's tied up. His only logic is, I'm gonna close my eyes to not, to not get caught up in these evil spirits that are coming out to murder everything, right? He kind of loses. I mean, maybe he wins in the end because he gets, he gets the ark. He doesn't really get the ark because it's tucked away in a giant warehouse, but he loses. There's something about losing, and this happens more in indie films than it does in Hollywood movies. Um, you know what happened in The Empire Strikes Back? Luke lost. He lost the fight, lost his hand. You have to, I, I really feel like if it's not tied to character, I, I don't know how the events of that film really can be meaningful if it's not tied to some hero character journey that you're on where you can, because we all fail in life. Believe me, we all fail in life. Life is just, I mean, look, it's just learning from your failures, right? I mean, that's, and I've made plenty of mistakes in my personal and professional life um, that I've paid for. And I like to think I'm, who I am today is better. That's, that's just, Failures, failure is how we learn, and I feel like by not imbuing that lesson, we're, we're doing a disservice to young moviegoers who might look up to these heroes. It, it really is, um, it's kind of a disappointing time to see how franchises are being, you know, 
twisted in a way that I don't think serves the audience. But, but there's something to be said for losing characters that lose more often than they win and what exactly you win. I think Rocky prob probably being the most obvious or best example of that because then they just made Rocky too. Sylvester Stallone made Rocky too. And the old, it's pretty much the same movie. I mean, there's some little fun differences in it, but, but it's the same movie, but he wins in that one. He actually wins the fight. <laughs> but it's kind of the same movie. They just revisit a lot of the same stuff in the film, but, but he wins, whatever. But the fact that Rocky lost, but he won, he had a girlfriend, Adrian, he won a girlfriend, even though he's kind of this simpleton, right? This sort of thug. Um, but in he won respect. It wasn't about winning that fight. It was about winning respect. And that was tied to him in his humanity and his soul and his character and being. That's why they made so many Rocky movies because that character is so endearing, you know? And, and we're on that journey, that constant, constant failure until the end and then he wins the fight. But, but in the first one he lost and, and almost no one remembers that. If you ask right now, ask any person you see like who won the fight in the first Rocky? And they'll say, Rocky won the fight. No, he didn't. 